Good afternoon and welcome to Northminster. We hope that you were able to join us last night for Dr. Gaddy's first lecture, Religious Freedom, Eternal Vigilance. Though if you were not, that lecture will remain available through our YouTube page, and we encourage you to make time for those important words. We are grateful to have Dr. Gaddy back this afternoon for his second address, Religious Freedom at the Intersection of Houses of Worship, Government, and Politics. As he continues to share his hard-won and practical wisdom from a long career of defending religious liberty in the United States. Please note that you are welcome to make use of the live chat feature if you are joining us live to post your questions and comments that you might like Dr. Gaddy to address in today's Q&A session following this lecture. If you have not yet, take a moment to go to northmen.org lectures to register, and you will receive a link in, to the Zoom meeting over email. Whether you have a burning question or you would just like to come and listen, you are welcome to join us. Also, remember that Dr. Gaddy's final address will take place tomorrow in the context of worship at 11 a.m., and a link to that can be found on our YouTube page. Now, without further delay, we welcome Dr. Welton Gaddy back into the pulpit. Have you seen the papers this morning? A staff member asked me as I walked into the office, you're in the paper again today, he continued. Well, tell me the news, please, I responded. Well, you were called a radical separationist when it comes to church-state separation. After scanning the paper quickly, I knew my critic. Uh, we often debated each other in the media. Earlier that week, a journalist in Washington, D.C. had featured my stern warning about the danger of partisan politics invading or being invited into houses of worship during an election year. My critic took exception to my concern. After two or three staff members joined the conversation, one of them asked, why are you so adamant in your defense of religious freedom? I'll give you the short answer, I said. My devotion to religious freedom is a matter of faith and good citizenship, fed by my understanding of the nature of religion, my commitment as a Christian, and the insistence on personal freedom in the United States government's continuing experiment in democracy. Religious freedom is as much a component of my patriotism as it is of my religion. As a matter of fact, protecting religious freedom has become for me not just a belief or a value, but a way of life. And by the way, I continued, I don't mind being criticized when the critic is telling the truth. I was sure my critic thought he was putting me down, but I was proud of what he said. Yes, when it comes to religious freedom, I am a radical separationist. For as long as I can remember, as a Christian minister, I've been intrigued by government and politics, though I've never really liked politics. I've lived and worked at the intersection of religion, government, and politics in every responsibility I've had as a pastor in churches, as a leader in a denominational office, and as president of Interfaith Alliance along with mixtures of all of those positions. On some days, I, I didn't want to be anywhere else in the world, feeling the exhilaration of standing with the most influential religious leaders in the nation to issue a call for responsible political action on an issue vital to the health of our democracy and the good of the people who comprise it, working in bipartisan coalitions with United States senators and representatives to call for passages of an important piece of legislation, uh, 
such as a law against hate crimes or authorization of funding relief efforts in response to damages from multiple hurricanes along the Gulf Coast and New England, and speaking to journalists as well as to national television audiences to clarify misunderstandings related to the constitutionally prescribed relationship between religion and government. However, on other days, I've been sickened by what I have seen passing as politics and angered enough to want to wash my hands of the whole mess, convinced that uh, politics and politicians rightly deserve every negative stereotype ever applied to them. Reality is that in that intersection of religion, government, and politics, I have met some of the best people I've ever known. And I have met some of the worst people I've ever known. Religious freedom is strengthened or weakened where religion, government, and politics come together. Many people categorize religious freedom as uh, an esoteric concern that belongs in the realm of academia and legal scholars. Others see it as a church thing. There was a time when religious freedom was narrowly focused. Those days are gone. Literally every day there is a proliferation of legal battles over religious freedom issues. Houses of worship and tax money, educational principles and religious doctrines, marriages and sexual orientation, worship services for parishioners, labor laws, criminal offices, campaigns in cities preparing to vote on banning male circumcision and offering no religious exception to the ban for Jewish men for whom that is a religious mandate. Government determining the kind of gravestones that can be placed on the burial plots of soldiers, debates over whether a cross is a religious symbol or a national cultural representation of death. Tennessee's passage of a bill forbidding public school teachers to use the word gay, a ruling in Texas that Jews who adhere to religious law will be denied burial in a Texas state cemetery. Challenges to the Mormon church, spending millions of dollars of their members' tithes and offerings to support anti-gay legislation. Minnesota's closing of a charter school because it is attended primarily by Muslims. Louisiana legislature's seemingly perpetual repeal of a law allowing public school teachers to teach creationism along with science. And Texas legislature's vote to require homeowner associations to permit Jews to display mezuzahs on their doorways as required by the Torah, though the government must relate the size and the placement into their understanding of what the plaque should look like. Now that's just a short list of issues. I haven't even mentioned current discussions on health care, employment discrimination, economy recovery, which are laced with crucial religious freedom concerns. Very few of the front page issues in our nation today are not affected substantially by people's views about religious freedom. Now here's my concern. Significant changes by votes in the Supreme Court have been without precedent. A more political court has changed the methodology used in interpreting and applying the Constitution. At one time, Americans had a pretty good understanding of religious freedom. Now, however, 
Civics is no longer crucial in the curriculum of so many of our schools, and numerous campaigns are underway to change the constitutional definition of religious freedom. I see trouble, and I hear alarms. In fact, some days I ask myself where I am. Is this the United States of America? And I wonder if we are intentionally eroding what Benjamin Franklin called a republic if you can keep it. It's scary. So, what should I do? What would you talk about if you're doing the Strickland Lecture today? And, and you want to be sure that you focus on the most important matters related to religious freedom. Where do you go with that? I, I tell you, I have written the lecture for today at least five times, and I'm still not sure how I can best enable you to know where we are in protecting our first freedom. I had written detailed descriptions of important executive declarations from the White House, legislation from Congress, and judicial discussions from the Supreme Court. But I think painting the big picture of the situation is more important than working through all of the minute details. I also want to talk about personal experiences rather than what I have only read about or been told. One question continues to throb in me does our nation still respect and seek to obey the Constitution? I'll share with you a few sketches of what's happening in all three branches of our government, confessing that many, many other issues deserve attention. Let's start with government-funded religion. Here's one of the first major changes that I see as damaging. When President George W. Bush was elected president, he immediately set up a faith-based office in the White House to manage a faith-based initiative in the nation. From the moment I learned of this plan uh, during then Governor Bush's campaign, I opposed it vigorously. Why? Well, for one reason, this nation has faith-based offices in houses of worship and agencies of organizations of care all over the United States, compassionately helping people meet all kinds of needs. Secondly, our founders wanted no part of a religion-oriented office at the center of our government. And third, his faith-based office and initiative contradicted the religious freedom clauses in the First Amendment. Remember yesterday? Tax dollars are not to be used for religious purposes. I spent more hours than I could ever count for eight years trying to put an end to the president's dangerous dream. I actually think President Bush meant well, but he did not understand religious freedom as defined by the Constitution. The president's staff questioned his faith-based plan, but they stepped in and meshed religion with politics, making a serious problem even a bigger problem. The White House sent money and publicity to charities virtually always in locations hot from political importance for attracting voters. My hope had always been that a new president could be persuaded to shut down the faith-based office and stop using tax dollars for religious ministries. When President Obama asked me to serve on uh, 
the reform of the Justice Task Force, I thought there was a chance for change. It didn't happen. Even though I was told the president and I were in agreement about what should be done. Actually, President Obama strengthened the program. Now, I can tell you that for 15 years, I lived the role of a radical separationist. What's happening now, I have no idea. I, I know President Trump uh, did not staff the faith-based office for a long time, and this administration provides uh, very little information on the budget. In 2014, a major turning point attacking religious freedom occurred in the Supreme Court's decision on the Burwell and Hobby Lobby case. The owners of uh, the Hobby Lobby stores objected to paying for birth control and other reproductive health issues for women because providing those services violated their religious convictions. When the Supreme Court sided with Hobby Lobby, the justices issued comments on their decision that completely changed previous decisions of the court. The bottom line was that the highest court in the land treated a for-profit corporation as an individual citizen, saying that corporations did not have to function in any way that compromised the religious beliefs and morals of the owners of the business completely ignoring the implications of that decision's impact on employees. This was an unprecedented U-turn in our Constitution. The court's decision violated both clauses of the religious freedom provision in the First Amendment. Now, the consequences of that decision continues to stir debates. Businesses argue that they now have the right to not serve blacks. They have permission to not serve any customer who disagrees with a store owner's religious convictions, they say. Closely related to the Hobby Lobby case came a series of court decisions that stirred passions, disagreements, and controversy. The Defense of Marriage Act of 1996, better known as DOMA, denied federal recognition of same-gender marriages. However, polling data showed that growing numbers of people approved of marriage equality. On June 26, 2013, the Supreme Court ruled that same-gender people could wed and enjoy all of the federal benefits of other married people. Two years later, in a case called Obergefell Hudson, on June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision ruled that all 50 states must license and recognize same-sex marriages. This decision immediately met an onslaught of criticism. Opponents of the ruling were loud and often mean, but they were neither convincing nor influential. The nation had taken another great step forward in the fulfillment of the promise of our con con Constitution. Maybe I should not have been surprised. A few months after that Supreme Court decision, I was invited to Iowa to deliver an address on religious freedom as part of that state's preparation for their caucuses. A journalist was waiting for me when I walked into the hotel. I could hardly believe what he told me and the questions he asked me. During the National Religious Liberties Conference, now, now listen 
to that title. The National Religious Liberties Conference in Des Moines, the organizer of the event, Pastor Kevin Swanson, called for the mass extermination of GLBTQ people. After quoting Leviticus 20.13, Swanson called for the death penalty for all homosexuals, bragging aloud, I am willing to go to jail for standing on the truth of the Word of God. Now that was bad enough. But three candidates running for the nomination of the President of the United States sat quietly during that harangue, never commented on it, and each one followed the hate speech with requests for members of the assembly to vote for him. With nausea in my stomach, I, I suddenly recalled phone conversations that I had during the days just prior to Congress's vote on the hate crimes legislation. The Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, a bill that I had worked on for 11 years. Mostly angry ministers called me to tell me how opposed they were uh, of the hate crime bill. On every call, I calmed the anger by telling the caller that as long as he, and they were all he's, did not tell people to kill, he could denounce and condemn whomever he chose. You mean I can still condemn those homosexuals from the pulpit? One man asked excitedly. Yeah, I said, disgustingly. You can still vent your hate. Ah, he breathed deeply. That's okay. That's good, he said. Boasting about the Hobby Lobby ruling was coupled with fear-mongering related to the high court's decision on marriage equality and used for a growing array of religious exemptions that uh, permit citizens from contributing to the common good and assisting the government in providing for the public's welfare. Medical doctors claimed a religious exemption from offering medical care for people whose religion they rejected and whose behavior they denounced. Numerous pharmacists claimed a religious exemption from filling prescriptions for birth control because they didn't approve of that form of family planning. Professionals in numerous businesses argued that religious freedom exempts them from doing anything, baking a cake or saving a drink to persons guilty, as they see it, of same-gender marriages, just as scores of their early predecessors had denied a place at the table or services for people in need whose skin color was black. That's not America. But the opposition is still working to reverse the high court's decisions on all of those matters. Today, today, this morning, amid the current controversy around the Supreme Court, I heard arguments aimed at reversing the marriage equality ruling. At this moment, anxieties are very high. Let me talk for a moment or two about religious freedom in houses of worship. Now let's talk about this. Uh, was the pandemic shutdown in churches uh, and anti, was it an anti-religious act or was it an act of responsible religion? Some congregations refused to cooperate. People supportive of the precaution are still being condemned as people wanting to shut down houses of worship and get rid of religion. 
I've talked with law and enforcement officers in Louisiana, in Florida. Not a one of them wanted to charge ministers with arrests, but every one of them was ready to hand out a fine or to shut down a meeting because those people, in God's name, were breaking the law and making other people sick or worse. It is if it, it is as if there is something holy about being stupid. People have died from COVID while other people in their congregations insist the blood of Jesus will cover us and protect us from the virus. So maybe I should talk about houses of worship and religious law. So many more important issues need analysis, uh, but I only have time to, to name a few of the issues and uh, make a comment or two on each one. Fidelity to a religious belief does not justify breaking a law of the land. Uh, religions can make laws for their congregations, but only the law of the land prevails. Look, I know hate groups have blasted Sharia, Islamic law, obviously blind to our Constitution's mandate that the law of the United States overrules any other law in the nation. And by the way, the Constitution also says there is to be no hostility toward any religion in this nation. I also want to distinguish between preaching religious values morally and preaching partisan policies, politics, in houses of worship. In our politicized world, people have forgotten that issues like peace, violence, care for the poor, human rights, reproductive health, hospitality, uh, marital relations, gun legislation, and immigration were moral issues long before they were political wedge issues. They belong in the church. Numerous people want the government to make their religion, everybody's religion, by law. And what happens is there is a desacralization and secularization of holiness. They don't see that they are secularizing uh, what to them is holy. A few years ago, when uh, there was controversy over whether or not to keep the under God clause in uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, I cringed when I heard Jeffrey Tubin say on CNN that challenging the words in the pledge would never work because the word God is now a patriotic word. Numerous Supreme Court decisions have required legal interpretations of religious beliefs and made what was holy secular. When a federal court ordered a cross in California to be removed from government land, Congress passed a law to use government money to keep that cross exactly where it was, a government-funded cross. Re remember, our, our Constitution says that government cannot favor certain religions over others. Secularizing the cross doesn't strike me as preserving religion. The Ten Commandments, Holy Scriptures as viewed by Judaism and Christianity, is now more of a civil code than it is the Word of God. The Supreme Court has, in effect, desacralized one of the foundational principles of Christianity and Judaism. So, Maybe you'll like this one. 
religious freedoms, houses of worship, and elections. We need to spend some time looking at religious freedom, houses of worship, and elections because I think you know we're deep into an election year. The founders of our nation tried to keep religion and government separated. Both politicians and religions have ignored those efforts. Elections increase problems, I guarantee you. Presidential elections are not for the purpose of electing a pastor-in-chief, but for installing in public offices those who are most adept in economic development, international diplomacy, domestic security, and providing for the general welfare of the public. Elections should not be viewed as opportunities for enshrining religious doctrines uh, sectarian ethics and public policies or national legislation rather as venues for strengthening democracy, fulfilling the founding visions of equal rights and even-handed justice and enhancing the common good. Well, let me begin talking about houses of worship and elections with words uh, I heard a long time ago from a pastor. Don't pimp the church. Political strategists have turned religion into a major campaign strategy. Don't do it. Don't give out the church role or the congregation's pictorial book with home addresses in it to campaign officials who want to use them. Houses of worship can register people to vote, but they can't tell people for whom they must vote. Don't ask a house of worship or the leader of a congregation for an endorsement of your candidate. Here's what's happening. I think religious freedom is being ignored. Elections in this nation should enable us to name our leaders without having to deal with the consequences of an embattled First Amendment. It's time for our elections to be celebrations of the integrity of religion and the vitality of democracy. But folks, we're not there. We're a long way from being there. Even with the current constraints imposed on religions by the IRS, Numerous religious leaders refuse to serve communion to people with whom they disagree on women's health issues and endorse candidates explaining that their candidates of choice are God's will and choice. I am deeply troubled that now churches in our land are identified as red churches and blue churches. I, I want to focus on one piece of legislation that reflects the irrationality and dangerous divisiveness in our nation that comes from Congress almost every year. In 1954, uh, Congress unanimously, <laughs> you, you heard me correctly, unanimously, we've forgotten that, passed a bill sponsored by then-Senator Lyndon Johnson that prohibited churches and other 501c3 nonprofit organizations from, and I'm quoting, directly or indirectly participating in or intervening in any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for elective public office. The punishment for a violation of that law is the guilty entity's loss of its tax-exempt status. In 2001, Congressman Walter Jones introduced a bill to abolish the Johnson Amendment. His intent was to allow houses of worship to endorse candidates for public office and significantly support partisan campaigns with a partisan part of the church's budget 
without losing their IRS status as tax-exempt organizations. Some form of that bill has been resubmitted regularly. President Trump promised that he would do away with the Johnson Amendment in the first months of his administration. Preserving religious freedom during elections uh, is not easy. I remember an occasion when members of Congress tried to appeal the Johnson Amendment, and they did it by hiding its text in a 1,000 pages budget bill thinking no one would see it and they could go right through it. Thankfully, we found it and it was set aside. This bill would turn houses of worship into precinct convention-like meeting halls and reconfigure the religious landscape in this nation by identifying congregations by their partisanship rather than by their denominational relationships or theology. What a destructive hit on the First Amendment that would be uh, along with the disaster that would come to religions. You see, I hope, why I spent so much time opposing that bill. Imagine what could happen in our church if the Johnson Amendment was defeated. Though I, I think our church is smart enough to not welcome the terrible possibilities that would be potentials. Northminster Church is positioned squarely in the free church tradition. We make decisions using a congregational polity. Now, can you picture a business meeting in which our church tries to decide which candidate for the presidency our church will endorse and what percentage of our tithes and offerings we will give to the candidate's campaign? You think we have long business meetings now. Mm. So far, this bill has been defeated, and it's been defeated in bipartisan votes. But you're going to see it again. In an election year, I always think about what shape our nation will be in on the day after the election. Winning an election is not important enough to violate our Constitution, prostitute our faith, and abuse the name of God by making what is holy look political. For years, religious leaders have endorsed candidates, but they have carefully separated their endorsements from houses of worship. In the 2000 election cycle, everything began to change. During the campaigns that year, and I can't remember whether it was on CNN or CNBC, Jerry Falwell said to me on the air, no Bible-believing Christian could vote for any candidate other than George W. Bush. I forcefully disagreed, uh, which he couldn't understand. Recently, David Barton uh, told his followers, Trump is obviously God's guy. Christians must vote for Trump and will have to answer to God if they don't. A month ago, in a video filmed by a Catholic priest in Wisconsin, the priest warned Catholics with these words. Here's a memo for clueless baptized Catholics. You cannot be Catholic and be a Democrat. Minnesota's public radio stations reported that 300,000 people watched this tape immediately. The priest concluded, Repent of your support of that party or face the fires of hell. Clergy people need to stop enabling candidates to use religion as a political tool. It is unwise and likely dishonest to give the impression that a candidate has the backing of any particular religious freedom. 
it's legal, they tell me. Yes, but what is ethical is just as important as what is legal. Listen, any houses of worship, now get this, any houses of worship can endorse a candidate from the pulpit. They simply have to give up their IRS status if that is their choice and act as politicians, not as pastors and churches. In every election season, I, I bring up religious freedom in political conversations. When online, political parties uh, ask uh, people to check their priorities. If, if religious liberty is not on the list, I write in religious freedom is defined by the First Amendment to our Constitution. In order to prevent the unholy use of religion as a political tool, several years ago at Interfaith Alliance, we put together guidelines for both candidates and clergy so each can respectably navigate the intersection of religion and politics in a multi-faith nation. Here's a sampling of the kind of questions that I think questions that uh, citizens should be asking candidates and uh, giving careful attention to the candidates' answers. What are your views on the boundaries between religion and government? What steps will you take to protect the rights of your constituents regardless of their faith and beliefs? How will you balance the principles of your faith and your obligation to defend the Constitution, particularly if the two come into conflict? Will you favor only laws that respect all faiths as well as people with no faith and support religious freedom? As I see it, election or not, religion serves this nation and each of its citizens best when religions function as religions. Houses of worship do well to host congressional, not congressional, congregational conversations on the most profound issues of life and death. Congregational discussions on values are crucial. Core values such as freedom, justice, compassion, equality, generosity, honesty and peace, freedom for choice, a respect for law, equality in an access to rights for all people regardless of their political clout and religious affiliation, a passion for waging peace, honesty about mistakes and misjudgments as well as wise decisions and successes. How important it is for a congregation to strengthen its citizenship by taking a new look at politics, politics that make the nation stronger rather than weaker, politics that do not stop at national borders, politics that seek to build bridges rather than create divides to win an election, politics that really demonstrate the art of government rather than the hijacking of government. I, I wish every presidential candidate in our nation had to endorse a statement made by John F. Kennedy when he was running for the presidency. Fearmongers uh, had opposed his, his Catholicism, saying that if he's elected, the Vatican is going to run our nation. Kennedy went to a Baptist pastor's conference in Houston, Texas, and these are some of the things he said. It is apparently necessary for me to state not what kind of church I believe in, but what kind of America I believe in. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. I believe in an America where no public official either 
requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source. Where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly to indir or indirectly upon the general populace or the public acts of its officials. And where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. I believe in an America where religious intolerance will one day end. Whatever issue may come before me as a president, I will make my decision in accordance with these views, in accordance with what my conscience tells me to be the national interest, and without regard to outside religious pressures or dictates, and no power or threat of punishment could cause me to decide otherwise. Now listen to this. But if the time should ever come when my office would require me to either violate my conscience or violate the national interest, then I would resign the office and I hope any conscientious public servant would do the same. Friends, no presidential candidate should say less than that. And no voter should accept less from a presidential candidate. Without question, the guarantee of religious freedom has been the primary reason for the vitality of religion and spirituality in our nation. The United States is home for Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Unitarian Universalists, Baha'is, indigenous or Native American religionists, Scientologists, Sikhs, Jainism, Zoroastrianism, Confucianism, Shintoism, Taoism, Falun Gong, and hundreds more. 75% of the people on this earth do not have religious freedom. Thank God religious freedom is vital. We have it. When I go to Boston, I walk the Freedom Trail. In the Old South Meeting House, chills run down my spine as I look at a copy of the religious liberty clauses of the Constitution laying on the communion table. I think about the members of that congregation who were catapulted into social activism because of their passion for freedom. They were not looking for government funding or undue political influence for influential benefits. They were declaring an intention of freedom and pledging themselves to fight for it. In that meeting house, I see and feel and understand the importance of religious freedom. On one side of that place of worship, a plaque preserves words from George W. Washington, from George Washington, words expressing dismay at civic leaders' ability to praise the importance of houses of worship in their speeches while compromising the sanctity of houses of worship by their actions aimed at using those houses of worship for governmental purposes. One particular Freedom Walk in Boston I'll never forget. It came a few days after fighting had stopped in Iraq. I was in Amman, Jordan, visiting with religious leaders from Iraq, uh, three different kinds of Sunni Muslims, three different kinds of Sufi Muslims, and three different kinds of Christians from Iraq, and about 30 other religious leaders from around the world. Thinking of how captivated and surrounded by war for so long these people had experienced, I could only imagine the 
depth of their desire for a moment without bombs and a sense of empowerment. However, I learned that once the Iraq clerics had time to be alone for the first time, they immediately found out that all of them had the same impassioned priority. They wanted a new constitution in Iraq that provided religious freedom. During our days together, the Iraqi clergy began to write that document. We have that for which they and scores of other people around the globe seek. The religious freedom that the founders of our nation sought. Whether or not what we have persists in, is yet to be known. Religious freedom in our land is dependent to a great extent upon the priorities, thoughts, and actions of people like those of us who are interested in these lectures. Whether speaking of past, present, or future, the guarantee of religious freedom is vital, ideally and practically, governmentally and spiritually, and in my personal opinion, for the good of all people and for the glory of God.